Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Keith. My pleasure. Great. Awesome. That number there should be changing. And there it is. There you recording it. Okay. And while this is done, I'm at Rumpex and I'm sitting at Guy's table. Guy, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Guy Gasser and I'm the owner of HB Philatelics out of Florissant, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis, north of the city. Ah. Well, Guy, we've been going around from table to table and asking the dealers. Why are you a dealer? Because it expands the hobby from just collecting to being able to participate in uh, not only buying and selling, but also helping others learn about the hobby. Because I look at it as a dealer's job is not just selling and buying material, but it's also being able to help educate collectors in various aspects. And uh, anytime you can help somebody broaden their knowledge base, uh, I think that's good, plus it's a fun. I enjoy doing it. Absolutely. And how long have you been a dealer? Uh, since 2011. So what is that? About eight years, I guess. Mm -hmm. you know, and like most dealers, collecting for a long time. Of course. Yeah. And what do you collect? The United States. What I sell, which some people say <laughs> is a trap that you shouldn't get into. <laughs> you know, but, exactly. uh, but I've done I've done good to keep my hands out of my own inventory, so it doesn't go into my collection. And, and that's that's something I just told myself I got to do when I first started doing this. So, even though I, I still buy from my own collection, but I don't buy from myself. I go to auctions or I buy from other dealers to keep it clean. Buying so, for your own collection. Buying for your own collection, yeah. And if you, yeah, and if you rob your own inventory for your own collection, pretty soon your inventory is decimated. And that's why we had it. And that's why we had it, exactly. I can understand, yeah. So what do you specialize in? As a dealer? Um, well, obviously United States, but within the United States, uh, I would say I, my specialty areas would be proofs and essays and uh, federal and state hunting permits. I noticed you have a Missouri behind you there, a duck stamp. Right. Uh, that's, that's a nice layout, pretty layout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's unique to have it cut out, the matting cut out in the shape of the state. And then it contains the uh, first 13 uh, waterfowl conservation stands issued by the state of Missouri, the number one being in the middle. And uh, they're all, you know, it's very nicely displayed. Uh, and it's just for sale. Are you buying? No, I don't collect Missouri duck stamps, but you can always start. It looks nice. It has a great presentation to it. Oh, it would look great on somebody's wall. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I'm surprised I haven't sold it yet, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. You need to go to Missouri. Well, I live in Missouri. <laughs> and I take it to all the shows in Missouri. And yeah, I would have thought by now somebody would have jumped on it. You know, so, uh, but, you know, it's, a, it's, it's more of an art thing, really, because you put it on your wall. It doesn't go in your album. So, yeah. so it's almost... You almost have to have a hunter come to a show who's also a collector, you know, because then they would be more apt to put something like that on their wall, uh, you know, versus like regular collectors. So, so it's uh, yeah, it's a hard sale, but it is for sale. How much? Five hundred. Five hundred dollars. Yeah. The catalog value of the stamps alone is seven hundred and sixty-five. Of course, you know, anytime you do that, framing is crazy. Oh, yeah, I'll bet you the frame costs 150 bucks. Yeah, and I didn't pay that. I got a, I got a super sale rate on the frame, so I didn't have to pay that. But, yeah, normally, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you can't really add the value of the frame in. <laughs> you really don't get the value back on the frame, so. 
How's it going to help people get in touch with you? Okay, how uh, can our listeners get in touch with you? Oh, the, the, the modern age of electronics, multiple ways. <laughs> you know, so phone number, uh, uh, 314-330-8684, or uh, email guy at hb, that's in Bravo, hb is in Bravo, philatelics.com. Uh, or uh, I have a website, and my website is www.hbphilatelics.com. And why is it HB? That's a uh, trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to ask my wife that oh. question. <laughs> so, but actually, you know the answer. Right? I do know yeah. the answer. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's nothing derogatory. <laughs> no. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, so, all right, I'll Thank you so much, Guy. You're welcome. I'm glad to participate. Have fun. Thanks. Can I hit the bottom button? Okay. So I'm at Rompex. I'm here with uh, Bubba and Mark. Bubba and Mark, why don't you introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Bubba Bland, an old friend of Guy's here, and, and uh, we go way back. I am uh, the past president of MEPSI which is the Mexican Elmhurst Philatelic Society International. And uh, we're just here for the fun and our annual meeting. I'm Mark Gonzalez. I'm the current president of MEPSI and the um, administrator of the MEPSI Expert Committee. Oh, excellent. So here's my question. Why do you collect Mexico stamps? Well. Like uh, most stamp collectors, you start when you're a child, uh, eight, nine years old, and I still have that collection. You start with U.S., and then when you're about 12 or 13, you discover girls, and you stop collecting, and then when you become an adult, you start again. So when I, when I um, became, uh, re reinitiated my stamp collecting, I continued with U.S. and uh, uh, Egypt, I liked Egypt because it had um, prehistoric buildings and uh, artifacts and pyramids. And, uh, and then I realized that Egypt was probably too far to go to visit these pyramids, but hey, Mexico has pyramids too, and that's, that's doable. So I, I bought a, um, a lot from um, uh, a stamp dealer that had a whole bunch of Mexico. and and uh, I started collecting and and I and I have to tell you it's it's addictive Mexico is has so many different areas that a person can devote a whole lifetime to never complete and and yet there's a dozen of these areas within within Mexico uh, a lot of people collect the classics uh, and of course <clears throat> Mexico has overprints and uh, a district overprints for uh, different uh, towns and, and cancellations that just make it uh, uh, so interesting. It's, it's, hard to, it's, it's hard to stop once you get started. So I recommend that if you, if you need a, uh, a hobby that you really want to enjoy, uh, Mexico is the place to go. What got you started, Bubba? Or, um, hold on, sorry. What got you started, Bubba? I, I'm pretty much like Mark. I started out collecting stamps as a child. Uh, I, I kept collecting, though, up until I got married in my early 20s. And I put my album up on the, uh, my album of U.S. stamps up on the, uh, on the, the shelf. And for a long time, I didn't collect again. And then in the early 90s, I had, uh, my wife found an article in, uh, in one of the magazines about Colombian issues that it that they had brought out with United States stamps, and she ordered that. And then I went, I went off on a run for, for stamps. I, I got very deeply involved with with uh, United States stamps, and especially the classics. Uh, Cash became a good friend of mine, and we used to have a study group on three cent issues. Oh yeah, I remember those nights going over all those little red stamps. Oh my gosh, and it, was, it was a lot of fun and stuff, but I got to the point where the last stamp I needed was a plum in, in color, because I collected the colors, and plum didn't work, work out for me, but I had 
been buying stamps. Well, don't gloss over it. Why doesn't Plum work for you? Too expensive at the time. <laughs> Way too expensive at the time. And too hard to find. <laughs> I, I kept sending my, my, kept getting them back and they said, no, it's just a, it's just a claret. Well, uh, anyway, I, I was buying stamps quite a bit and any kind of stamps because I collected French stamps and other things. And I happened to buy a small collection of Mexico. Well, Mexico should have been up my alley because my parents, uh, when they retired, they moved to Mexico, and I loved Mexico. And I was just about ready to sell the album and uh, when I was at a stamp show, and the guy that was going to, I bought this collection, and I was trying to sell it, and the guy that I'd shown it to, uh, he said it was worth about $40. And I thought, oh, that, that seems awfully low, because it had a lot of stamps in it. and. Uh, so I went ahead and walked around this place, and I came back, and I decided, well, I'll just go ahead and sell it. And he wasn't there. So then I decided, well, I'll just start filling it in and playing with it. <laughs> and long story short, I have been collecting Mexico now for well over 20 years. I have been a dealer over 20 years in, in stamps, mostly in Mexico and uh, I collect the Dos Reales of the first de first design, and I have thousands of them. And that's the one thing I didn't sell, but now I'm starting to sell those too. <laughs> so I really enjoy collecting Mexico. As Mark says, it is a collection of a lifetime. Well, I collect historical stuff, and I always have. That's why I like the U.S. number 11s, is for the history. Um, what do you think about Mexico history? Because I love the history of Mexico, although it's not always the best history, it is always the most interesting history. Yes, that's true. Um, Mexico has, uh, has suffered through so many wars and so much internal conflict, which has affected um, the postal history and affected the production of stamps. One of the areas that I uh, one of my favorites is uh, the provisional period of 1867-68, which uh, uh, came directly after the French intervention where Napoleon um, installed a puppet emperor, Maximilian, in Mexico. Um, so, the, the, and then in 1910, you have the Mexican Revolution that lasted uh, 10 years and the various stamp issues that, uh, that were created then. It's, it's fascinating, there's, there's so much uh, effect on the postal um, uh, uh, history uh, due to the internal conflict and the politics in Mexico. I agree with Mark on those things. The fact is that Mexico is very tied into the uh, to the history. The Mexican stamps are very tied into the history of Mexico. Uh, it started out even in the even in the very first issue. By 1859, there was all kinds of uh, political upheaval in Mexico, and uh, it issued in the French intervention that as, uh, Mark was talking about, the, uh, the stamps were changed, the, the stamps became limited in places. Uh, politics became a big feature in, in whether a, a district issuing uh, stamps was even receiving any stamps from Mexico City, from the uh, postal authorities. So things like splits that are costing into the thousands of dollars in places like, like New York and, and European countries and stuff, they can, be, uh, they can be purchased for less than $100 coming from Mexico because they resorted to splits because of a lack of postage stamps. Um, one, one area where the, um, the history of Mexico intertwines with the history of the U.S. is the Mexican-American War. And Dr. Banchik is over here, who's an expert on on that particular area. I don't know if you if you want to to um, get him involved. Absolutely, he's <laughs> famous. You want to come join us? Sure. Thank you for the invitation. Let's go down one seat. We've met before. Pleasure to see you again. Hey there. Okay. Yeah. So, what can I do for you so, today? So the uh, Mexican-American War. You are. In, First of all, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and who you're affiliated with and what you do. Yeah, I'm Mark Banchik. 
member of MEPSI, past president, chairman of the board, also president of my local stamp club, Collectors Club of New York, and uh, I like exhibiting, going around meeting people. The exhibit we have at the show here in Denver this weekend is Mexican War, culmination of manifest destiny or expansion across the continent. Now, the Mexican War was how we formed our current geographic boundaries. It was a result of that uh, little conflagration which uh, resulted in the existing southern and western borders, along with the Gadsden Purchase, which gave us a little more land for the transcontinental railroad. Now, the interesting thing about James Gadsden is he was a southern railroad magnate, magnate who knew more about railroading than most other government officials. And so when they negotiated the treaty, he picked a route, he picked land that would give a good route for the Southern Transcontinental Railroad at the time, which he was an investor in. Not that that would have anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that was not appreciated is that he was since he came from Charleston, South Carolina, he was extremely pro-slavery. And at that time, the pro-slave, anti-slave debate was taking uh, gaining great attraction in the United States, and so the territories coming in were considered possibly pro-slave, and there was a lot of northern opposition to any additional lands coming in because they may be pro-slave states versus anti-slave states. One of his suggestions was to split California in half, so that the northern part of California would be anti-slave and the pro southern part would be pro-slave. That didn't fly, and a few years later we had a little minor disagreement in this country about that issue. But the Mexican War exhibit here shows not only the activities of the Mexican War, but how the treaties evolved, how the settlements evolved, how the cultures evolved, and they also clashed in forming what we now know as the lower 48 of the United States. Okay, so give a synopsis of the war in 30 seconds. They were there first. It was the end of the road for them because most things were centralized in Mexico City. Uh, the English Anglo settlers came in along the coast, needed more land, more freedom, and started occupying the areas that were considered backwaters by the Mexican government. Even, eventually there was a clash of cultures, a clash of powers, and history is written by the winners. <laughs> Good 30 seconds. Yeah, time to spare. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. What'd you get on your exhibit? We got a gold medal, which I'm very proud of. The show is extremely strong. There are a lot of wonderful exhibits in the show, uh, all areas from airmail through the early uh, Latin cultures. And I recommend that coming down and taking a look at it because there's something for everyone. Well, unfortunately, this is going up on Thursday, so uh, they'll have to invent a time machine. So There's always next year. Next year, there you go. And we look forward to seeing you next go-round. Thank you. Anybody else have anything left? I don't know. How about, uh, <laughs> how do you, how do, if a person wants to get in touch with MEPSI to join, to uh, subscribe to the, uh, is this a monthly or a quarterly? Uh, our, um, our monthly journal, Mexicana, uh, it's actually quarterly. a quarterly journal, Mexicana, um, is uh, uh, one of the heartbeats of our society. In order to become a member, it's very easy. We do have a website. It's www.mepsi.org. And MEPSI is W, I mean, M-E-P-S-I, MEPSI. Now, I have always said MEPSI. I know what MEPSI is. I never knew what the E in MEPSI stand, stood for. How do you get Elmhurst in MEPSI? Um, the Elmhurst Philatelic Society, EPS, was formed in 1935 by a group of collectors in the Chicago area. Um, after a, a short period of time, they decided that uh, let's pick a country and specialize in that country. Uh, at first, I think they chose some other Latin American countries, but finally settled on Mexico, uh, which uh, then uh, led to changing the name of EPS, uh, Elmhurst Philatelic Society, to Mexico, Elmhurst Philatelic Society International. We're an international organization with members in 17 different countries. Thank you. I never, I, I mean, I knew it was always the Mexico Philatelic Society, but I had no clue what the E was. <laughs> Elmhurst, Elmhurst. Well, Elmhurst. thank you very much. Uh, have a good show. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. So I'm at Rompex. I'm with What's in Your Attic. Why don't you all introduce yourself? 
Hi, I'm Rich Palestro. Gene Olgate. I'm Paul Domenici. And what do you guys do? What What is going on? We're from the Rocky Mountain Philanthelic Library. That's very important. Oh, we just, I just yeah. talked to those uh, fine folks about 10 minutes ago. We're trying to give folks who have inherited stamp collections along the way some idea if their collections have any value. And we see everything. I mean, from junk to some collections that have some value. Uh, so it, it covers a gambit. There's some foreign, there's some U.S., you name it. So what is coming today? We don't know until it comes through the door. Okay. Yeah. What have you seen so far? Mostly not really good stuff. And modern uh, U.S., which is, might as well use it on your mail. I think that's pretty common. You know, people find stuff, and uh, from my experience, you know, somebody will find something from the 1950s and go, holy cow, this is really super old. Yeah. But for stamp collectors, yeah, 1950s isn't that much. No. What came in last year? Well, we had some high-end collections that were purchased, that were purchased uh, by an old collector up in the mountains. And this gentleman had purchased the entire collection, and he bought in a, uh, a sampling of it. And it was very high value. And it was U.S. We also had uh, another uh, person brought in some high-end revenues, and we did this morning. We had a, uh, a lady brought in some revenue stamps that were very, very nicely uh, kept, and there was a good value there. Now, we don't give value. We give guidance, advice, approximation, and we... Uh, we just try to point them in the right direction if they want to sell it, donate it. Paul, what do you have? Well, speaking about the internet, one of the things that we always get, and I'm just curious if you have this, is people who see a one cent green Franklin stamp and think that they now can go out and buy a house. Yeah, it happens every day. In fact, we've had several today already. <laughs> and uh, basically, the only thing you can tell them is, unfortunately, this is from the 50s or the 60s, and it's worth one cent. <laughs> uh, so if you, you know, if you still pay, pay your bills by mail, take this and another 54 cents somewhere and ship it off. Yeah. I, so what is what's been? Think uh, I'm thinking like uh, Antiques Roadshow. Yeah. Mm. Has anything like that ever come in where you see uh, somebody bring something? Non-philatelic? Non-philatelic, something with a story? Yesterday, uh, Joe got <clears throat> an uh, uh, a collection that included some um, illustrations, and there were probably numbered illustrations, and they went along with the uh, waterfowl stamps, which are, mm. waterfowl stamps do well, oh, yeah. and they were all meant, were you here then, Paul? No, I don't think I was. And uh, the illustrations were over 11 by 17, and they were very nicely done, mm. but we don't normally, you know, we don't do illustrations, paintings, pictures, but we see a lot of them. People donate, like, to the library. Um, at one time, I guess it was very popular to take stamped sheets of stamps and put them in frames. Yeah, we yeah. ended up with a, a ton of them. And, and the frames uh, tend to be far more valuable than the stamps themselves. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> so we get a cross section of stuff. Not rarely do we ever get non-film, real non-film talent. Yeah, not, not too often. We did have one collection uh, that came in yesterday. Uh, that had a set of graph zeppelins. And uh, so I checked them, uh, and they were never hinged. So I told the folks, I said, uh, that collection, or at least these three stamps are worth $2,365. Now I said, that's catalog. That's not what a dealer's gonna offer you. But at least you know you have some value. So it does happen. Very good.
anything else? Uh, why don't you tell people how to get in touch with you just in case? Uh, give a little background. If somebody wants to volunteer or something, tell them how to do it. As the Rocky Mountain Phil and Talk Library, we are exclusively a volunteer-supported library. We can use all the volunteers we get. We are a non-profit, a 501c3, so no one gets paid. But we are located at 2038 Pontiac Way, which is right off Evans and a block west of Quebec. And uh, we welcome everyone and anyone to come and visit us. And we love to have members and volunteers. The art or the hobby of stamp collecting you know, it's like many other hobbies, it, it waxes and wanes. And we're on the wane right now. We're, you know, and uh, the young people don't seem to be as um, in need of stamp collecting or hobbies like that. But we have a very active youth program, very active, right behind you. Mm -hmm. And uh, we encourage parents to bring their children. It's totally free of charge. And uh, we haven't had a child disappointed about it. So, yes. Well, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, only because because we are on podcasting, we have a different demographic. So, you know, the people who listen, generally speaking, uh, they top out at even 45. You know, so 45 is pretty much, you know, toward the top. You know, we have 50, 55-year-olds, but it's not as common. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, there is indeed a waning of the hobby, yeah. but I think that it is being picked up by people who are not necessarily going to social events anymore. That's the thing that I tend to see. Mm. And having a volunteer organization like the Rocky Mountain, uh, it gets people to interact with other people, sort of, you know, how clubs, how clubs used to be. And so, I'm really, I'm very happy that you guys exist. I love the fact that you're doing what you're doing, and I want to thank you and applaud you for it. One thing that's important to note about uh, today's collector, we are very historically linked. Most young people think, well, it's just a hobby of pasting stamps in a book. It's anything but that. And we do a lot of research, our own research. Our collection of books is probably the largest in the Rocky Mountains, without a doubt. It's, we are the second largest philatelic uh, library in the country, in the country. Uh, second only to the National in uh, Belfont, uh, PA outside of the uh, University of uh, Pennsylvania. Congratulations. Thank you. All started with volunteerism and donations. Well, thank you very much, and uh, have a very good show, and I hope you find something really great, so next time I'm here, you'll tell me that you found, uh, you know, a first-day cover of U.S. number ones or something. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that would be great. That would be unique. Yeah. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you thank very, you. very much thank for coming over. I'm at Rompex. Why don't you tell everybody who you are and uh, what society you're with? I'm Andy Muren. I am uh, with the Colorado Postal History Society. We specialize in the history of Colorado post offices, all the way from the territorial to the present time. It's the gold rush, early settlers, etc. It's a fascinating hobby. Great. So you you pulled out something very, very interesting. Why don't we discuss this? What do you have in your hand here? It's a Denver, in Denver City, 1859. That's when Denver was part of Kansas Territory. That and Aurora came about at the same time. But the, the, these two postmarks, they look like tombstones. We, in the collecting universe, call these tombstone cancels. And Denver City is the only one that has them. There's four of them. They're very unique and they're highly desirable. Very early gold rush, 1859, uh, 1860s. So, the gold rush was for the Rockies. People would be mining gold up in the hills, come on down to Denver. They'd stop at Denver. They would stop at Denver first, get their supplies, and 
originally that's where the gold was hit on Cherry Creek there, but they followed the the gold up to to uh, Central City, Blackhawk, and the mines up there. But Denver was the main supply point for the mountains 20 miles away. We were just in Blackhawk uh, last night, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Interesting place. That is like a gorge. I have no clue how they got in and out of there. I guess with mules or something in narrow pass. But what type of gold mining were they doing up there? Uh, originally, it was placer, but eventually they had to use loads, which they had to go in and mine it out and take it up with mercury, uh, acid, etc. But originally it was, it was free gold. You could grind it up and, and use mercury. And mer See, mercury will dissolve gold. So they would mix the gold, uh, gold placer with the uh, gold. And when the mercury got real thick, they would take it, put it in a pan, and boil the mercury off. Then they got gold. That's what's happening in South America now, and all these men are running, getting uh, problems with uh, uh, lung problems. It's very, but that has nothing to do with Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> so, so these are for uh, what city actually did the tombstones? Denver City only. Okay, so Denver City is different from Denver in what way? It's the same city, but here's a very good uh, story for you folks out there. Denver City was on one side of Cherry Creek. The town of Auraria was on the other side of Cherry Creek. They couldn't decide which was going to be the town. So in, in October, true story, they walked in the middle of the bridge and flipped a coin what the name of the town was going to be, and Denver won. <laughs> so now we are now Denver. Interesting. So this could have very, it was this before or after the coin flip? This is before the coin flip. <laughs> that that is neat. That is neat. So this almost could have been a dead post office. Could have been a Raria. Yeah. It, it could be a, the Auraria Rockies or the Raria Broncos or whatever. That yeah, it could have been. <laughs> Excellent. So why don't you tell people about your society? Where is it located? How do they get in touch with you? It's Colorado Postal History Society. We're based in uh, Denver, based but we got um, people all over the United States that are interested in. Colorado postal history. If you if you like history and you like Colorado, this is the place to be because it's. I've been doing this for. I'm an old man now, but I've been doing this probably oh Jesus 40 or 50 years, and uh, it's extremely. You, you learn about Colorado, you'll be surprised. Like, did you know about the coin flip? No. No, I didn't. <laughs> and personally, I collect stamps. Obviously. Okay. I collect stamps with the story much more than the stamps just because I want to hold, uh, fill the spot. I love the stories about the stamps. That's why postal history is so good. Anybody can love a, like a nice pretty uh, Walt Disney stamp or Marilyn Monroe, but with postal history, Colorado postal history, where has that stamp been? Where did this stamp go or this letter go? Uh, we got some towns up there that are so good up there. Gold Dirt, you'll hear some of the names, Gold Dirt, uh, Chattanooga, uh, those are just uh, parts of the mining history of Colorado. So, so how do people get in touch with you? Uh, okay, to, to get, if you want to be a historian of note, you can join the Colorado Postal History Society. And we've got a website, of course. And it's Colorado Postal History. But if you want to contact the secretary, you can contact him as Peter Ditlow, D I T L O W. I'll do that phonetically for you people. David Ida Tom Lincoln Ocean William. He lives in Box 13, Calhan, Colorado, 80808. It's in the middle of nowhere, east of Colorado Springs, and. Uh, that's the secretary to get a hold of. Great, because you put out your, uh, this is a small magazine, let's say, but right. it's got a lot of information in it. it. Your back cover had the, oh, I got the wrong one. Well, this back this back cover had, are we on? That That's it. Like I said, it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you've got the It's pictures. quarterly. It's quarterly. Okay. See, I'm looking at another one called Pine Grove. Actually, it was down by Castle Rock. I think there's only three known uh, 
coverage. You folks out there don't know stamps, call them envelopes. People in the business <laughs> call these covers. Now, Pine Grove, there's only three of those known. And like the tombstone cancels, there might be 10 known. That's what, that's what we look for. Go to auctions, go to antique stores, uh, corrals, trying to wheedle this stuff out of people and uh, to build our collections. It's fun. I've heard many, many people find fantastic things at garage sales. Yes. <laughs> yes, at garage sales. And, uh, uh, what do we got here? We got a, oh, here's a good one, everybody. It's called Tip Top. Oh, it sounds like it belongs to a circus. No, it's not a circus. If you're familiar with uh, Colorado and the Moffat Tunnel, before the Moffat Tunnel was dug, they had to go over the top. It was called Corona Pass. And... Uh, we 80, drove through it. <laughs> it can't go over now because of the because right. the rock slides. Yeah, I've been over the top. It, it's great, and eighty percent of their operating budget was for snow removal. <laughs> uh, as you can see from this little thing here, the man's standing on top of an engine, and the snow is still uh, higher than he was. And that's a that's a fascinating area up there. It's beautiful, uh, but. Uh, there used to be a, uh, a shed, a hotel, and everything up right on top. You can hardly see it from this photograph. But the second photograph right now, there's nothing up there. It's bare. The winters are so terrible up there. It's uh, you got to like it to be up. It's called Tip Top. Obvious reason, you're up to 1,000 feet. Well, gold miners had to be making money because nobody would go out there for free. It was a scheme. Yeah, it was a scheme. That was, originally, that was to go to Salt Lake City, and then now it... Uh, Stops. It's a ski train. Goes through the Moffat Tunnel and ends up in Cripple Creek. Well, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Thank you. Any of those? So I'm here at the exhibits now. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Greg Schultz. I collect Washington Franklin coils. And I'm standing in front of your exhibit. You've got a large gold. Congratulations fantastic exhibit. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the items inside of it? Uh, probably two of the, the key items are the Orsberg coil, which was the three cent per 12 stamp issued in 1910, and the 10 cent 356 on cover. Uh, both of those actually exist only due to the special order by Bell & Company. Oh, I, I didn't know that the 10 center was because of Bell. Yes. Oh, why don't you talk about Bell? Because this is a really interesting story about stamps being ordered by the post office in such limited quantity and really making rarities. That's very true. They, they basically ordered the stamps to send out their samples of acid pills, and they're a pharmaceutical company. Uh, the majority of the stamps of the Orangeburg coil are damaged due to the fact they sent out little metal tins, which we have an example of on the page. You actually got one of the tins, that's fantastic. Yes, they're, uh, they're not too hard to find, but they show why the stamps, many of them are damaged because they were put through the regular canceling machine. And so these were special orders, and why don't you go through a little bit how they were made? Because this is uh, also a part of why this is so rare. Okay, the, the actual 3 cent and the 10 cent are from the perf 12 issues. Uh, the 3 cent is from the single line watermark and the 10 cent is from the double line watermark. Uh, the 3 cent and the 10 cent were both printed on the star plates which had varied spacing. So when you have the star plate, you're basically your inner eight rows of the plate are two millimeters and the outer six rows on each side or three and it was an experiment that was done by the Bureau to try and solve the problem of the paper shrinking unevenly. And so uh, just so that people understand what we're dealing with, the value, I mean you can look it up in the Scotch catalog but because everybody here is listening and wants to know how much is a Orangeburg uh, 3 center and 10 center worth and these are on cover so these are premium items. Let's just give them like the off cover so that they can imagine what the on cover is. Okay, an off, an off cover used Orangeburg coil is 
uh, usually an auction is anywhere from 3500 to 10000 or more. And of course, the big thing is the quality of the stamps. Uh, the ones that have no faults are far and few between. Uh, the greatest majority, probably 95% or more, have some sort of a crease or a thin or a fault. So they don't go for as much. But again, the, the centering and the quality of the stamp are what usually determines the factor. Um, off cover, the 10 cent stamp is a lot rarer in that aspect. Um, they will usually, go, you know, they're much harder to find as far as used pairs and singles. Uh, not as not as difficult as the Orangeburg foil. And I also noticed that you have a normal bell with a nine cent rate and probably carried a. That was also that was also a nine cent. It's a large wrapper that has a single. 5 cent of the 355, the horizontal per 12, and it has a 4 cent single of the 354 per 12. So the Bell Company was a major influencer, let's say, in stamp collecting. They, they created some stamps that without their order, they would not exist today, and um, you know, big varieties. Um, of course, the Orangeburg Coil on cover, and if you look at that, it catalogs around $28,000. And the 10 cent, it has, it has a uh, catalog value of 10,000, but it's in italics. <laughs> and the reason behind that is it never comes to auction. And the italics is because you aren't telling anybody how much you paid for it. Well, that was, <laughs> that was necessarily, they don't have much, I guess, when they figure catalog yeah. value in Scotch, they go by sales. So to get a picture of that, uh, from the research that I've found, uh, in the last 36 years, there are six covers documented that are known, and they have all sold only one time each. Are they all Bell? No. Uh, the fact the 10 cent coil usually comes out of the six that are known. Usually comes on a stamp dealer corner card because they were the they bought the remainders of the stuff that Bell returned that didn't use. Uh, the one that's in the exhibit is from a Masonic organization in Philadelphia, and it's the only commercial use per se out of the six. So here, since you're an expert, and I sort of consider myself an expert too, in my opinion, U.S. coil stamps are terribly undervalued. They are avoided by most people. And one of the reasons is, is because an eight-year-old kid with a pair of scissors can fake one. What is your opinion on the collecting of coils. I mean, obviously, you have dedicated yourself. You have a magnificent exhibit. What's your opinion on U.S. coils? I think part of the difficulty is you know, a lot of people don't like the minor differences, which could determine the value. Where, for an example, in the first issue of the first twelve, a five-cent pair is three to five hundred dollars. Okay, so you left off with. Uh, uh, is, is an example of the two cent variety from the first issue in 1908. Uh, the horizontal coil is three to five hundred dollars for a pair. Uh, in the second issue, that's the same perforation, same design, but now a single line watermark, it's twenty five hundred to thirty five hundred dollars for a pair. Very good. Congratulations again and thank you very much. You're welcome. So, yeah. we're here at the uh, Rocky Mountain Stamp Show and uh, we're here with the Rocky Mountain Philatelic Library. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell people uh, what you do? Hi, I'm Vera Louise Kleinfeld Pfeiffer. The Rocky Mountain Philatelic Library is a 100% volunteer um, entity. Uh, we are the only stamp library, spelled P-H-I-L-A, <laughs> Philatelic uh, Library in um, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and the neighboring states. We have over 14,000 books that are dedicated directly or indirectly to stamps and stamp collecting. Some of them are fiction, mysteries, that kind of thing. We have a volunteer crew on every day, Monday through Saturday, except holidays, from 10 to 4. On Thursdays, we're open from 2 to 8 for people who have to work so they can come after work. We help people learn more about their stamp collections or what they've inherited from their grandparents or parents or uncles. We have people who are knowledgeable in different subsets of stamp collecting. 
There are reference materials all over about everything. We have a smaller library within the library that is Scandinavian. We have people who meet once a month for different interests. There are many, many different stamp clubs in the area. And there are also referrals to stamp dealers when the stamp show annually is not open. Any other questions? Yes, I'm really intrigued. You said that you have fiction and nonfiction. Are there like stamp novels? Oh, yeah. There are uh, mysteries, the disappearance of a stamp, the murder of somebody over a missing stamp, things like that. There are also how-to books, how to be a stamp collector, how to collect... Not how to murder people over stamps. It depends upon how deeply you read into the mystery. <laughs> it depends upon your sense of reality and whether you can tell the difference between fiction and nonfiction. No. <laughs> Most of the books are nonfiction uh. and educational. So what do you collect yourself? Israel, and I have a mini, mini collection of Palestine because it's very expensive, and some really nice older gentlemen. Now, I'm 76, so two years ago I thought he was an elderly man. <laughs> um, I helped him when he came in to bring things to what's in your attic to find out approximately what his collection was worth. And he asked me what I collected, and I said, Israel, and someday I'll be able to collect Palestine. And on his way out, he thanked me and asked for my address, which I gave him. I figured, you know, thank you note, or he was going to tell somebody um, that uh, I had helped him. About three weeks later, I got a dozen Palestinian stamps in the mail from him. Can I just help Apparently, myself? I think it's over here. Yes, you can help yourself, Paul. Right. You're a volunteer. And we, 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 are, <laughs> we are currently holding a silent auction, even though we're talking. Um, and anyone, you do not have to be a member to bid. We have uh, about 300 lots, maybe more. Oh, is that what's in these boxes here? Is the, uh, the, the, the auction? This or? is the listing, yes. And Paul, I heard you mention your name is Paul. You're one of the volunteers here? I am. Cool. Tell us why you volunteer. What is going on? He's, a, he's interviewing for a podcast Oh. Of a st stamp collectors podcast, they've been on. Okay, okay. Uh, I volunteer because I retired a little less than a year ago, and I have time, and I love stamps. He also likes same people. Same here. Same here. He also <laughs> likes people. I love people too. Good. So you? Oh yeah. Look at that. So some of them are like this, where where the actual lot is there, and others are um, larger collections, like the one my husband was holding, which is covers. So when people come here to Rompex, they really need to stop at your table, if nothing else, to participate in the auction. It's a real deal. Yeah. It's um, some of the best priced stuff that we've had in more than 20 years. So this is like the official auction of the stamp show then? It's the only auction of the stamp oh. show, and the proceeds go to support the 501c3 tax-exempt library. Mm -hmm. We get donations from people, families of decedents, that kind of thing. And we support programs like Wounded Warriors. We get stamps on paper and we send it to them and for their physical therapy. They take the stamps off the paper. They may do projects like make a jewelry box of a stamp collage, that kind of thing. We send stamps down to the uh, stamp the Philatelic Library of Arizona and New Mexico and they send stamps all over the country to teachers who are doing subject matter so history through stamps art through stamps literature through stamps well obviously the people who listen to this podcast it's going to go up on Thursday so they're not going to be able to run over here to Rompax how do they get a hold of you they can come to us our um, address is 2038 South Pontiac Way in Denver. It's um, off the I-25 on the Evans exit before you get to Quebec. So it's east of the uh, 25. They can get to us at www.rmpldenver.org. Rocky, well, yeah. Rocky Mountain Philatelic Library. That makes sense. Denver. Um, and they can... I do not have the number here. However, we are listed. Excellent. Anything uh, in closing? 
Well, in closing, people can become members, anything from $25 per person per year and up. They can borrow books. They can use our computers. Um, they can't just walk off the street and borrow books or <laughs> use No, we get people who walk in and say, I just want to print out my resume, and I say, I'm sorry, this is not a public library. It's strictly a membership library. Yeah. Yeah. But if, if people need help desperately, like with a collection, we will help them without their becoming members. Although we try to encourage them to become members. I understand that. Well, thank you very much. No, we have stamp sales several times a year. Um, country collections are, are sold um, by big boxes at the library. Um, there are other topicals, things like that. And we will give tours for free if they come. <laughs> it's impressive if you have a library large enough where you get a tour. Oh, yeah. We have three different locations, two, two different buildings. One is used top and bottom for readings and things. Wow. Um, we print a bi-monthly newsletter called Scribblings. And um, we hold these sales of both stamps and supplies. Excellent. Thank you for interviewing us. Thank you. Thank you. You have two new voice messages and one saved message. New message. You have been listening to award-winning stamp show here today, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. Produced and edited by Cash Braces, with engineering and recording by Tom Schilling. Script and research by Scott Murphy and Mark Leon. And I'm your host, Don Goss. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Podbean, and follow us on Facebook. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com, and thank you for listening. To replay this message, press 1. To delete... Press 7. To save, press 9. For message saved. There are no more messages. Stamp show here today. Stamp show here today. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.